following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. There's a couple of guys that are going to lift the cross up on stage here because we're, we're speaking about the cross. I think it's good to have that visual image in front of us. Uh, this morning, and I, I stuck on the cross today that sign, uh, which we'll talk about in a moment, Inri, some of you may be wondering, we don't have that there every week, because it doesn't mean much to most people, but we'll talk about what that means as well. But I was thinking, it's a strange thing in a way that we sing a song like that, clinging to the cross, uh, because the cross is, it's an instrument of torture. You know, we forget this, we, we sing clinging to the cross, and we, you know, it's a song that we, we brings us closer to Jesus. But the cross is an instrument of torture. It's an absolutely grotesque thing. It's, it's probably the worst form of execution anyone's ever invented. It's absolutely hideous. One of the worst displays of what human beings have come up with to kill other human beings. And I, without being offensive, like the most Similar parallel that I could think of in modern history would be to compare the cross to a gas chamber, a Nazi gas chamber. That's basically what you're talking about. I don't mean to be disrespectful by that. But in terms of the absolute ugliness and brutality of what the cross represents as a hideous form of torture and execution, that's what you're talking about. And we sing clinging to the cross. Imagine if we sung a song called clinging to to the gas chamber, clinging to the electric chair. We're not going to sing that stuff, are we? Because that would be hideously offensive and scandalous. But we sit here singing, clinging to the cross. And it's good that we do, but what I, all I'm trying to say is it's a strange thing. We're a strange lot for singing that. You know, We don't realize how bizarre we are for standing here and singing, clinging to the cross. That's something in the first century people didn't mention in polite conversation. You didn't talk about it. That's filthy conversation. And we, we worship a God who's gone to the cross. It's unbelievable. And so we're talking about the cross, and I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 19, and we're going to read the account of Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, This is really the climax of the whole story, the climax of the gospel that we've been working through all year. It all builds to this, and especially the last few chapters where John's really slowed down the action and taken us step by step through the final day of Jesus' life, and then we come to this in John 19 verse 16. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but write that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. 
Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. When a group of us went to Israel earlier in the year, we uh, visited the site, which is the traditional site of Jesus' crucifixion. Nobody knows for sure where Jesus was crucified, but the traditional site that people travel to to memorize Jesus' death, uh, commemorate, is called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. There's a huge church now that's there. Uh, And you go into this church, and you're confronted by a very religious sort of environment, uh, there's religious images everywhere, there's religious icons uh, and, and big shrines. It's very dimly lit, it's very solemn and very austere. And you wind your way up a staircase and into this upper room, which is, again, very dimly lit. And there's a huge big shrine there of Christ on the cross. And you go and place your hand in this hole in the ground. That's really all it is, a hole in the ground. And you touch the, the ground beneath it, which apparently is the ground on which the cross was Placed. Nobody knows that that's the place where the cross was placed, but that's the traditional site. And millions of people have touched that spot and remembered the death of Jesus. But it was interesting, as our group was reflecting on this later on and talking about our experience in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, a lot of us found it quite hard to connect with the death of Jesus there. Uh, and quite hard to really feel any sort of association because of all the religiosity that's there. It's sort of a barrier, I think, to getting back to the authentic scene of what the crucifixion might have been like because when Jesus was crucified when you, when you read this account in John it wasn't a very spiritual place that Jesus was crucified it wasn't a religious place it didn't have any great significance it was just an ordinary place it was a secular space it was called Golgotha which means the place of the skull not a particularly endearing term some people think Maybe it was called Golgotha because there was a rock face there with a skull that looked like a skull. We don't know. We're not sure why it was called Golgotha. But we know that where Jesus was crucified was really near the city. It wasn't in this kind of remote area. Sometimes we picture the crucifixion happening on a very isolated hill a long, long way away from civilization. You know, because we sing that hymn, on a hill far away stood the old rugged cross. So we picture a hill far away and this kind of remote, these three crosses on a big hill in the distance and a few people at the bottom. But really, other than that, it's a really solitary scene. But that's not like the crucifixion either. 
The crucifixion happened in a very public place. It was a very public space because we're told in Luke's gospel that there were passers-by. People came and went in front of the cross as Jesus hung there. And so it must have been by some sort of road or access way. Probably it was just outside the city of Jerusalem on one of the main thoroughfares in and out of the city. There were marketplaces there, would have been right beside the road probably, not on a hill far away. It would have made no sense for the Romans to crucify people on a hill far away because the whole point of crucifixion was that it sent a message. It was a very public message. A crucifixion wasn't just a form of execution for the Romans. It was a tool of state control. It was a way of reinforcing the reality that Rome was in charge, that Caesar is Lord, that anyone who messes with that can expect to be hung on a cross. It was a power play for Rome to emphasize the power, the glory, the authority of Rome and make a public spectacle of anyone who dared to defy Rome and defy the emperor. So if the Romans were in charge today, if they occupied Auckland, they'd be crucifying people down at the viaduct. They'd be crucifying people in Aotea Square because they want people to see it. They want people to know. There would have been people gathered there watching the crucifixion of Jesus, but there's others who were just passing by and were confronted by the reality of this, confronted by the horror of what's going on. That's exactly what the empire wants. It's exactly what they wanted, to reinforce exactly what the high priests had just said to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. That's the point of crucifixion. That's the point of the sign that Pilate had made. And put above Jesus' head. That wasn't a usual practice to do that. And the idea was complete mockery of Jesus. He had the sign written in three languages. And those words, I-N-R-I, that represents the first letter of the Latin words. Pilate had the sign made in Latin, which was the official language of the Roman army. Sort of the elite language of the Roman Empire. Also in Greek, which was the common language of the empire, and in Aramaic, the language specifically of the Hebrew people, the Israelites. So he made this sign to send an international message that this is the kind of thing that happens to anyone who claims to be a king. This is the kind of thing that happens to someone who defies Caesar as Lord. And that was the charge against Jesus, was basically treason that he allegedly had claimed to usurp the authority of Caesar. And so Pilate made a spectacle of Jesus by doing this. It was mockery. It was saying, this is, you know, what kind of a king is this? This public, crucified, peasant criminal claiming to be a king. This messianic pretender to the throne. What kind of a king is this? It was just a way of mocking him. I think by extension, it was a way of mocking the whole Jewish people and saying, this is the kind of king the Jews are worthy of. This is, look, the king of the Jews. This is the kind of king this miserable people deserve. It was that kind of sentiment, that awful sort of shaming, ridiculing sign and statement that Pilate made. We sort of think of Pilate sometimes as a bit of an indecisive guy, but he had times of being really brutal. And this was one of those times, using these words alone. He was able to put Jesus down, put the Jews in their place, and reinforce the message that Caesar is Lord. And yet there is... An amazing irony in those words, isn't there? That Pilate had this sign made that says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, intending it to be mockery, and that sign contains the truth about who Jesus is. Pilate never saw it. There's an amazing irony there. Pilate 
was the one, remember, Pilate was the one who asked Jesus, what is truth? In the sort of cynical, skeptical kind of way. And then he has a sign made that says exactly what the truth is about Jesus, and he doesn't get it. He doesn't see it. That's the, that, if that's not irony, what is? This is the, the beauty, if you can use that word, of what John is telling us in the crucifixion story. That in this mockery, we see who Jesus is, that he really is the king of the Jews. He truly is the king of the world. He truly is the king over all creation. Each of the Gospels describe the crucifixion of Jesus a little bit differently. Each of them highlight different things, and they draw on different aspects, and they present Jesus in a certain way. You know what John wants us to see about the crucifixion? He wants us to see Jesus as the king. That's the point. If you ask John, what does the cross say, John? He said, it shows Jesus as the king. Before the cross is anything for you and me, it's a revelation of who God is. It's a revelation of who Jesus is, and unmistakably, it reveals Jesus as the world's true king. And you see this right through the passion, right through the trial of Jesus. He's given a crown of thorns to wear, mocking his claim to kingship. And yet he's the only one standing there who's got true authority. He's given a purple robe to wear, mocking his kingship. And yet he's the only one there who has real royalty. He's mocked by the soldiers who give him this mock homage, hail king of the Jews. And yet he's the only one there who's worthy of worship and Pilate presents him to the people, this mock inauguration. Here is your king. And yet he's the only one there who has true kingship. The whole of the passion of Jesus reads like the coronation ceremony of a king. Until finally Christ ascends to his throne as the cross is lifted up. And he reigns from a wooden cross. It's the final climax of this coronation of the great king. And this awful irony that Jesus is the king above every king. He's the Lord over every Lord, greater than earthly, any earthly authority or ruler. And yet he's the king who reigns from a cross. He's a suffering king. He's a crucified king. It's like Jesus takes everything that we would associate with kingship, power, authority, majesty, splendor, status, rank, privilege, all of that, and he turns it on its head. And he connects kingship to weakness and powerlessness, and brokenness, and humiliation, and shame. And that's the kind of king that Jesus is. He's a suffering king. He's a crucified king. This is the paradox at the heart of our faith. We're a strange people for worshiping a crucified king, a suffering king. The heart of the gospel is that paradox, the suffering king. But we've got to somehow hold this intention. Jesus is king but he's a crucified king. Because in that paradox and in that tension, we find what kind of king Jesus is. We find what kind of ruler he really is. And we find who we are in view of the cross. See, Jesus is not just a suffering king. He's not just a king who suffers. He's a king who suffers with us. Christ is the king who suffers with us. Look at this scene between Jesus and his mother. It's this heartwarming scene, and at the same time, it's so disturbing that Mary, Jesus' mum, is standing there at the foot of the cross. And you can only imagine, you know, those of you that are mums especially, you can only imagine what that experience must have been like for Mary. 
I thought the passion of the Christ captured this so well because as you journey with Mary through the events leading up to Jesus' death, you get these, Mel Gibson gives you those flashbacks. Do you remember that? Back to Jesus' childhood when he's interacting with Mary and he's playing with a, with, I was going to say a toy airplane. That seems like it wouldn't be the right era. <laughs> he was playing with something. And, uh, and he stubs his toe or he hurts himself and Mary comes rushing in to help him, smothering him in, in her arms. And we do that, don't we, as parents? Our kids hurt themselves, they stub their toe, we rush, it's like a medical emergency, rush upon them, smother them in in our love. And that's what Mary would have done. And here she is, standing at the foot of the cross, watching her son die, watching her son hung upon a cross in his final moments, being tortured and brutalized and dying. It's the agony of her soul in that moment, must have been extreme. And Jesus looks at her, and even though he's going through intense agony and drawing his final breaths, He looks down at her and has compassion on her and he says to her, woman, here is your son, meaning John, the apostle John. And to John, here is your mother. And from that moment, John takes Mary into his home and looks after her and provides for her. It's such a human moment of Jesus, isn't it? You have the crucified king, Jesus is is Lord and he's God, and yet he's he's so human that in his final moments, he cares about his mum. And he looks at his mum and he just sees her hurting there. And his heart just goes to it. I think it's just a beautiful way in which Jesus, even on the cross, is this suffering human who identifies with us. He does this for each of us. Because he's the crucified king, he identifies with us in our pain, in our weakness, in our brokenness. The cross enables Jesus to do that. Because through the cross, Jesus entered into the fullness of our humanity, the fullness of the human experience, the fullness of the human condition. He did that without sinning, without compromising who he was as God. But he waded into our lives and the mess that we make of stuff. He waded into our humanity and he took all of our struggle and all of our pain and all of our weakness and all of our brokenness on himself. And part of the reason he did that was so he could identify with us in our pain and in our struggle and in our brokenness because he's experienced the depth of human suffering himself. Because of the cross, Jesus doesn't just have sympathy for you. See, sympathy is something we can have at a distance. You can feel bad for someone at a distance. You can feel pity for someone at a distance. You can feel sorry for someone at a distance. But the cross is what moved God from sympathy to empathy. Through the cross, God feels empathy for us. Empathy is to enter into the suffering of another. That's what the word compassion means, to suffer with. And God comes to us through the cross and he suffers with us. The cross is what enables him to fully enter into our struggle, our weakness, our pain, and to feel it, to really feel it. I don't know how easy that is for you to get your head around, that idea that God feels our pain. He's not just the God who walks with you. He's the God who suffers with you, who feels what you're going through who feels the world's pain and empathizes deeply with us in our weakness because he suffered on the cross. At the moment, globally, there's two major problems and issues that the international community is pretty focused on. ISIS on the one hand, all the violence going on in Iraq and Syria, and Ebola on the other hand. Over 10,000 people now killed by Ebola. And as I look at those two realities in our world at the moment, it seems to me they represent the full scope of sin in the world, the full scope of human brokenness. On the one hand, ISIS represents the extremities of human evil, what humans are prepared to do to each other, 
On the other hand, Ebola represents the extremities of natural evil, the brokenness of creation, creation's groaning for its liberation and its redemption. And we've got to ask ourselves, does the cross have anything to say in a world of ISIS and Ebola? Because if it doesn't, then the cross is just relegated to the church of the Holy Sepulchre, just to individual religious experience, just to kind of a corner. But the cross speaks to a world that's filled with pain and reveals a God that suffers with those who suffer and hurts with those who hurt. See, we experience ISIS and Ebola as news items. We experience them through media, and there's a lot of distance there, unless we're personally connected. But we can feel sorry for those who are affected from a distance, but God experiences those things in a completely different way. God knows those experiences from the inside. And he's intimately acquainted with the grief of those who have lost friends and family through ISIS, who are made refugees through ISIS. He's intimately acquainted with the grief of those who have Ebola right now and are dying or don't know whether they're going to live, who have lost loved ones through Ebola. He knows that suffering and he feels that suffering. He allows himself to carry the weight of it within his own being. See, I think we're still stuck on an image of God as this kind of unmoved God, this kind of unfeeling, unemotive God. But the cross reveals a God who feels deeply, a compassionate, empathetic God who takes the weight of our pain. And he does this in your life. It's not just the world's problems out there. He does this with you. Some of you at the moment are going through deep grief. You've lost people that are close to you. And your heart's aching with grief. And I want to encourage you to look at the cross and ask, where is God in relation to your grief? Where's God in relation to you? What does the cross say about that? What it says is that God is grieving with you. He's grieving with you. He's not just walking with you. He's not just beside you. He's grieving with you. He truly feels your grief. That's what the cross has done. It's brought God that close. He feels your depression. He feels your anxiety. He feels your addiction. He feels your anger. He feels the loss, the aching of broken relationships. He feels it. And he does that without being anything less than God, but he feels that. And he doesn't just offer quick fixes and platitudes. He comes to you in your pain through the cross and he sits with you, places his arms around you and brings himself under your burden. He identifies with you. And that kind of God can have such a deep solidarity with us, much closer than a God who just has sympathy for us. That kind of God opens up space for a really deep communion because when you share a burden together, it brings you close. That's what God does for us. By sharing our burdens, by feeling our pain, He creates real solidarity with us, real communion with us, that we can sometimes just sit in the darkness with God together and know He's a God who feels our pain because He's a God on whom the world's pain has converged on the cross. He's a God, He's a King, but a King that suffers with us. But if all God has done is suffer with us, then ultimately there's no hope beyond suffering. If all God does is suffer with those who are affected by ISIS and Ebola, then there's no ultimate hope that those things don't have the last word. 
What we need to know is that there's hope beyond those awful realities in our world. And this is what the cross speaks to us as well. The cross reveals a king who not only suffers with us, but he suffers for us. And John brings this out in a beautiful way. I want to just show you one little detail. We often overlook it in the text here, down in verse 36. John's described the way that when Jesus died, the the soldiers came and they wanted to speed up the process, get the bodies off the cross. So what they would do is break the legs of the criminals. If your legs are broken, you can't lift yourself up to get oxygen, so they'd die faster. They broke the legs of the other two guys on the cross, but they came to Jesus and found he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. And interestingly, John describes that by quoting a verse from the Old Testament. He doesn't quote a lot of scripture, John, but he does here in verse 36. And he says, these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Now, it's a really good practice of Bible study that whenever you see a quote from the Old Testament in the New Testament, you go back and look at it. And look at what it's there for. And look at it in its original context. And look at who it was written about in its original context. It will tell you a lot about how it's being used and what's being said in the New Testament. And when you do that with this quote, it's really fascinating. Because it's used three times in the Old Testament. The sentiment, not one of his bones will be broken. Once it's used of a person, but twice it's used of a lamb. It's used of the Passover lamb. And the reference in Exodus and in Numbers, is to the preparation of the Passover meal. This was the meal that the Israelites shared on the night that they left Egypt. And God said to them, take a lamb and slaughter it and spread some of its blood, sprinkle its blood on the door frames of your your house. And tonight the angel of the Lord is going to pass over your homes. And as he passes over, if he sees the lamb's blood on the door frames, he will spare the firstborn child of that house. But for all those houses without the lamb's blood on the doorframe, he will strike down the firstborn son in each home. And it happened. And then the families were to take the meat of the lamb and share it as a meal together. And they were to do that without breaking any of the lamb's bones. Not one of his bones will be broken. That was the restrictions around the Passover meal. So John picks up all of this imagery, all this Passover language. And he applies it to Jesus on the cross to show us that Jesus is not only the king, but he's the king who becomes the lamb. He's the king who becomes our Passover lamb. The lamb was the means of Israel's liberation from Egypt. The lamb's blood is what protected the Israelites from the judgment of God, which passed over them. The lamb was the means of their freedom from Egypt. And now Jesus has become our Passover lamb. Jesus was crucified on the day of preparation for Passover, the day that the lambs were killed for Passover. John makes a point of telling us. In fact, some people believe that the crucifixion happened almost exactly at the time that in Jerusalem, all the lambs were being slaughtered for the Passover meal. It's a deep symbolism here. The great Passover lamb has come. Christ is our lamb. And John drives it home, if you've got the eyes to see it, with this reference, this little obscure reference to when Jesus is thirsty and he says, I, I am, he says, I am thirsty. And they get this wine and vinegar and offer it to him. And you know what they put it on? The hyssop plant. That seems irrelevant. But it's the very same plant that the Israelites in the book of Exodus are explicitly commanded to use. To take the lamb's blood, you get the hyssop plant and dip it in the lamb's blood and you sprinkle it with the hyssop plant over the door frames of your home. It's a Passover reference. And so John, using all this symbolism, is driving home to us. 
Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is the one through his death who protects us from the judgment of God by taking our sin upon himself. He's the one who provides for our freedom because he's absorbed our sin and now he brings us God's forgiveness. He brings us out of the clutches of sin and death and Satan. He brings us into a place where we experience peace with God, where we know God, where we are forgiven and healed and free. That's what Christ has done. He's not only suffered with us, he suffered for us. He suffered in our place. He suffered in our stead. He suffered on our behalf to reconcile us to God. That's the significance of the words that Jesus said from the cross when he said, it is finished. In Greek, that's just one word, tetelestai. This means completed. Bringing something right through to completion. Bringing something to its intended goal or its destiny. And what Christ finished on the cross is not only the work of his own life, but God's entire redemptive story. Going right back to Abraham. Right back to the calling of Abraham and through the whole history of Israel, all of God's working to reconcile the world and humanity to himself, Christ brings it all to completion on the cross and says, it is finished. Atonement is made. Reconciliation has been accomplished. When the Israel Bible Society came to translate that word into modern Hebrew, to create a version of the New Testament for modern Hebrew readers, they used the word nishlam to translate, it is finished. It's the root of the word shalom. Because they recognized in that word that when Christ said, it is finished, what he's saying is, shalom has been achieved. Peace has come. The shalom of God has come to earth. And we have peace with God. And even though we still live in a world that has ISIS and Ebola full of brokenness and suffering and pain, the cross speaks to us of a day when Christ will come again and God's shalom will prevail. And it will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. It will be pervasive. One day Christ is going to come again. He's going to come again as king. And he's not going to be a despised king. He's not going to be a rejected king. He's not going to be a humiliated king. But he'll still be the crucified king. Even in the new creation, Jesus is still going to be the crucified king. He's still going to have the nail scars in his hands. Even in the new heavens and the new earth, he's still going to have the wound in his side. He had it in his resurrection body. He has it now. He'll have it when he comes again. When John sees a vision of Jesus in Revelation... In Revelation 5, how does he see him? The lamb that was slain. Having all power, but that power is expressed through love and through suffering and through self-sacrifice. That's who Jesus is. The cross is not just something Jesus did 2,000 years ago. It's an expression of who he is. So when he comes again, he will still be the lamb that was slain. He'd still be the Passover lamb. He'll still be our crucified and risen Lord. He's still going to have the nail scars in his hands. Because his power is always expressed in self-giving love. So we have this cross up here. Every Sunday it sits down here. And it spends the rest of its week in one of those storage units. 
And in a way, it kind of you, you sort of think, and this is sort of like the cross that Jesus died on in the sense that just as people passed by the crucifixion of Jesus, we can kind of pass by the cross. We come and go every Sunday in front of it. We come and go on our way to communion. We come and go to greet each other. We come and go to pray. We do all these things. We have our whole service in front of the cross. But I wonder if we truly appreciate the significance of what's happened there. I wonder if we fully grasp the reality of what has been finished on the cross and what the cross reveals about who Jesus is. It's hard for us because we live in a culture where the cross is popularized. It's a fashion icon. It's a sign of a roadside accident. It has these multiple meanings in our culture and it's very hard for us to get through all of that and try to get a fresh vision of what the cross truly is. But we've got to try. We can't allow ourselves to become numb to the significance of this. It's at the center of our faith, the grotesqueness of the cross, but the beauty of the cross. They've got to come together in our hearts. And I just pray God gives us a fresh glimpse of what the cross is as a revelation of Christ the King, a revelation of the King who has suffered, the crucified Savior. The King of the Jews, the King of us all. I pray that God would give us a deeper revelation of the cross as showing the King who suffers with us, who empathizes deeply. Hebrews says we don't have a high priest who can't empathize with us in our weaknesses now. We have one who has been suffered or tested in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. That's what the cross shows us that's who the cross reveals that's what the cross has brought about a god who can identify with you and sits with you now in your pain and feels whatever it is you're going through and i pray god would give us a revelation of the cross as a god who suffers for us in our place who takes our place should have been our death should have been our blood spilled but it wasn't it was his he took our place to reconcile us to god and even though that victory was completed on the cross It's not yet fully implemented. We're still waiting for the day when Christ returns. And the shalom that was achieved at the cross will be finally outworked in the new creation. And the cross will be the center of that new creation, just as it's the center of our faith and our life today. So may we be people of the cross. And may we learn this morning, but each day of our lives to stand at the foot of the cross individually as a community and just look and gaze and allow ourselves to be amazed at the wonder of what Christ has done for us and to live our lives in view of the cross and allow the cross to cast its shadow over the whole of our lives. That's where our redemption's found. It's where our hope comes from. This is where our life is. It's in Christ. And it's in the crucified King. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to picture that scene where you hung dying on that cross. And the crowd stood there jeering at you. And your own mother stood there in anguish. And your disciples stood there confused. And Father, we, we want to imagine what we might have felt what we might have thought if we were there. And Father, we ask that you would somehow give us a deeper way of seeing what it is that you have done for us there. 
And as we think about the physical horror of what the cross represents, we want to allow that to remind us of your great love for us, that you'd be prepared to endure that out of the depths of your love. We want to thank you that out of your suffering has come life. And we want to thank you that in what we're going through today and the burdens that we're carrying, whether they're known by others or whether they're just closeted up in our hearts, we want to thank you that because of the cross of Christ, because of that event 2,000 years ago, you feel the aching that's in our heart today. That you're a suffering God and that you come near to us and enter into a deep solidarity with us in our pain. Thank you, God, that the cross brings us hope beyond our pain, that there's a day when all things will be made new, that shalom is here, and one day it's going to cover the whole earth, and every person and all those who belong to Jesus will be renewed by the cross, We thank you that the cross not only points us backwards, but also forwards. And it stirs a hope within our hearts for you to come again as the crucified king. So we simply want to say thank you, Jesus. We don't understand fully all that you've done. The cross really exceeds our ability to explain it. All we can do is say thank you, Jesus. For as much as we are aware and as much as we see of what you've done on the cross... We recognize that we we don't deserve any of it, but we gratefully receive it. We thank you that you've suffered with us. Thank you that you've suffered for us. And as we come to the table now, Jesus, we pray that through ingesting these elements, that we would be more aware of the sacrifice that you've made and that your grace would be renewed in our lives. And the cross would take central place in our hearts again. So we take this meal in remembrance of you, in gratitude towards you, and in anticipation of your coming again. For Christ's sake. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.